You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members for members. In season six, educators discuss student-centered curriculum with Janoj Cotter. Thanks for coming to the OEA Grow uh, podcast. The idea here is for members from across the state to get different perspectives on whatever the theme of the month or season is. And so for this particular season, student-centered curriculum, which um, is a major passion of mine and I've sensed it's a major passion of yours, is the the topic that we're going to get to talk about today um, and to get things started. Um, assuming you're good to get started, I'm curious um, if you know uh, if you were if you were given a chance to get on a, a soapbox for a minute because you were going to uh, hang out with some other OEA educators from across the state. Um, who are you, and how have you been serving, or how do you serve Oregon students? Yeah, um, my name is Anil Naik, um, and I teach in the Bearden School District. Um, Currently at Southridge, I was at uh, Beaverton High for a minute, and um, I grew up in this area, um, but after some time living overseas, um, some years living overseas, coming back to the U.S., and uh, came back to the school district that I grew up in. Uh, So I went to some of my elementary and then all of middle and high school um, in in Beaverton School District. So um, it's... uh, it's a little surreal being back and certainly a different district than it was when I was coming up as a kid. So um, primarily your experience working with Oregon students has been as a high school educator. Um, That's right. Any other roles come to mind? Um, well, no, I mean, not in the classroom. Um, I am at present and for a year have been um, a point to COSA um, in some social studies curriculum work. Beaverton. Uh, the district has been, been probably about four years now in the process of a K-12 curriculum uh, review um, for social studies and high school is sort of the last wave of um, the rollout here and um, me and Beth Merrill and Jeremiah Hubbard and Brad Parker are um, doing some of that right now. But yeah, and as far as the classroom stuff, it's all been... Um, High school, uh, high school social studies. Great. How many years uh, have you been in the classroom? I think this is year 13. Okay. Yeah. Well, thinking back to your experience going through Beaverton schools, do you remember seeing yourself, your interests, your identity, aspects of you reflected in the curriculum as a student? And... If so, or if not so, how does that inform the approach that you try to bring forward to making some of those connections for students? Yeah. um, So I guess by way of background, um, my family uh, immigrated from India before I was born. So I was born in the States. Um, And when I was a student in Beaverton, there were very few Asian kids, uh, or at least South Asian kids. At my high school, it was white and East Asian kids, and uh, all of my teachers 
um, for all the years that I was in Beaverton, um, uh, to a person, they were all white. Um, and the curriculum uh, uh, was reflective of uh, those, the teacher's background, probably the interest in education that they had, and um, the demographics of the school at the time. So in a word, no. <laughs> I mean, in a word, no. Um, I didn't uh, see, I wasn't put in a position where I could develop any kind of racial consciousness until I was in university. Um, at all, yeah. So as far as how that informs what I do now, um, it's, it's pretty thorough. Um, you know, my school is majority minority, like uh, many schools in the Portland metro area are. And uh, for many of these students, I'm the first or perhaps second or third uh, teacher of color they've ever had in their 10, 12 years of education. And so in me and in my experience as a child of immigrants, they see themselves um, in terms of the content. Uh, it's very globally oriented. So the classes that I teach uh, or have taught in the last handful of years have been philosophy, uh, IB anthropology, IB history, race and ethnic studies, uh, US history. And um, all of those courses are uh, globally oriented and not so much just like in content, but in, um, in the lens that we bring into the classroom. So it's, um, it's what I teach. It's how I teach it. And it's who I am, uh, as a person with my own lived experience, my background. Can you think of something that you, um, are doing or trying this year that might have grabbed and the young Anil made him lean forward in, in his seat a little bit more um, as an 11th or 12th grader taking one of these courses? Oh, um, <laughs> that's interesting. I haven't explicitly thought about it uh, like that, but um, I think it um, perhaps there's a, yes, I mean, yeah, there, there's, I think many of us as educators um, try to be the person that we needed to be when we were younger, um, whether we're coaches or we're in the arts or we're classroom teachers. Um, I think that always, at least for most teachers, will heavily inform what kind of teacher they are. Um, so... I'll give you one example. In um, IB history, our year-long look is at freedom movements uh, in the last 150 years. And so we look at decolonization from you know uh, British and French colonialism, looking for patterns around the world. And we look at um, freedom movement in this country, the black freedom movement, sort of the, the civil rights movement, but an elongated chronological look at that that includes black power. Um, and then in the race and ethnic studies class that we've been running here at Southridge for about four or five years, we have a deep look at, um, local history of peoples of color, uh, along with giving students the vocabulary that they need to 
have conversations about race and be reflective on their own lived experience um, uh, in this country. So I think all of those things would have been of high interest to me of grounding myself in the local here in the Portland metro area, but then also being able to um, see patterns um, globally and a way of making sense of the present moment that we're in. I think all of those would have been of interest to me for sure. Awesome. Thanks for that reflection. I'm curious um, to hear your perspective on this, and you've kind of gotten at it a little bit already, but for me, place-based ethnic studies and or climate change education are top of mind when I envision student-centered curriculum. All of those can, of course, be overlapping. Um, I'm wondering how do those surface in your work or in your service to students, um, maybe with an example of one of those place-based connections from race and ethnic studies, um, or um, how um, ethnic studies or climate change come up in some of those international um, foci that you mentioned? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we'll, we can take a moment and chat about the race and ethnic studies course. So um, I think it came on here um, in 2018 here at Southridge High School. And um, students really needed it. And um, I was given the opportunity to be able to teach the course. And as I was creating the course, I had to make some sort of determination on what the nature of the class would be. Um, and so I, the summer before I taught it, I probably went and had 15, 20 different conversations with teachers and other schools and education leaders and former students who I'd known, um, asking them what they thought kids need and would benefit from. And um, what I landed on was a class that opens with um, terminology, like what we use a lot of um uh, words surrounding race, um, but they all kind of end up becoming a mash in our head, like race, ra ethnicity, racism, structural racism, individual racism, uh, systemic racism, uh, and, and you know discrimination or prejudice. And in the end, we all kind of think, well, these are bad. <laughs> but I think one thing that this class gives the students is tools to disaggregate that to make sense of the messiness that is out in society <clears throat> and by having the language to be able to name label and come to grips with the way things are in a sociological sense i think that gives students the opportunity in their own place here in in their home um, to see themselves as uh, participants rather than just spectators in their own lives and in terms of understanding conversations that they're having about race or that they're seeing on social media, giving them some tools so that way they're, um, uh, they're not intimidated by it. And then we move in the latter half of the class more to your question is um, an application of those concepts through local history of people of color. And so we have uh, a deep look at um, Asian American, Hispanic, uh, 
uh, African-American, excuse me, <clears throat> and um, indigenous histories. And uh, all of those things are centered on the local and the local um, kind of in, in scare quotes here, the local can be Beaverton, it can be the Portland metro area, it can be Oregon, and in some cases, the American West more broadly. Um, and typically at the high school or middle school level, when we're looking at racial history, um, it ends up drifting back east or towards the south. And there's um, there's an absence, I think, for, for young people as well as adults of understanding where the West fits into um, history of peoples of color and, and certainly where Oregon and Beaverton fit in as well. So I th that class intends to ground students in the local and also grounded in their own lived experience. So I was curious about, um, do, you, do you find that students um, lean in, find it engaging, find it, um, you know, of their interest when you are able to address uh, climate change in some of those global studies? courses? I imagine that you do. Is that part of your repertoire? Um, you know, climate change is all of our concern. And it, it's um, something I think about often in my own, uh, in my own life and what I read and uh, what I think about. But uh, as far as what I've been able to bring into the classroom, it has been, uh, frankly, rather absent. Um, hmm. I think the new U.S. history course that in um, global studies course that um, the Beaverton School District will be rolling out here has a space in the spring to consider uh, contemporary issues of global significance, ideas of where as young people they can be engaged in the world that they live in. And surely at that space, climate change and climate change activism has a place um, if the teachers choose it and if the students choose it, um, obviously it wouldn't be prescribed. But um, I think the only place sometimes that it comes in and it's pretty in passing is considering um, in the IB history class, the uh, nature of geopolitics um, following colonization. So um, the knock on effects in Pakistan or India of climate change and how that might affect uh, stability in Pakistan or stability in India um, as these spaces are vulnerable vulnerable to um, the ice pack in the Himalayas. And we certainly saw this last summer in Pakistan with this flooding of a quarter to a third of the population or a quarter to a third of the land uh, going underwater. Uh, but it, is it a deep area of focus? No. Uh, should it be? Yeah. Um, can it be? Definitely. Hmm. Well, yeah. Thank, th thanks for um, that feedback. And um, sorry if it was a leading question, but it was very interesting to hear that. So thank you. And yeah, I'm thinking too about, you know, there's kind of the constant um, ongoing conversation around who are the primary emitters, especially at a per capita level versus yeah. who is going to be primarily affected in the next yeah, right. 100 to 500 years. Yeah, that's right. No, that's right. No. Um, well, I'm curious, you've been, in, you've been in the game over a decade, 
And I'm curious how you have seen yourself move in trying to make the curriculum matter to students. Um, what are some experiences that, that come to mind? You mentioned one earlier with, you know, going around and kind of conducting 20, 30 interviews with folks to get a sense of like, you know, this shouldn't be just my head. Like, what do you think about this? Um, do any other examples come to mind for how you've seen yourself shift in terms of kind of what you put on the agenda or how you are trying to run lessons to, to make them matter to students? I mean, I think that the number one thing that comes to mind is is talking to my colleagues and um, not just the ones in, in our building here, but across the district and, and friends in other districts as well. Um, I think it's easy to drop into the uh, what did I do last year model of teaching. And certainly I do that often. Um, but I think Ideally, maybe a quarter to what I teach um, per year is something that is I'm trialing for the first time. And that comes from colleagues and that comes from um, being able to have the space and time, um, uh, whether it's at lunch or on professional development days, um, to be able to have those conversations and uh, to have the digital resources to be able to, to do that as well. But um, I mean, that's that's the um, the informal ways in which we develop new curriculum. There's also, uh, I mentioned earlier, some of the the work that is being done at the district level in terms of creating new curriculum. And that is a space in which we can raise the floor a little bit um, to give uh, new teachers, non-specialist teachers, teachers who are changing from one school to another, um, teachers who are... Um, wanting to try something new, but um, uh, wanting to be guided as they try something new. So I think there's um, the opportunity in this district and a lot of other districts to uh, learn from each other and uh, tap into a lot of digital materials that are available, whether, in, for example, in my case, social studies, uh, DBQ online or uh, Brown University's choices and things like this. Uh, the Stanford History Educational Group, SHEG, um, where we can look for more relevant things. We can look for um, maybe the same content, but taught in an interactive and engaging way. Uh, I think we've all moved far beyond going through a textbook. Uh, and that was the experience that I had as a student. And I don't know of anybody... Uh, any colleague that is to say that that teaches that way anymore. Mm. Yeah, sometimes in an AP classroom, you can't escape it too easily. Um, I'm curious, do you um, collect, solicit student feedback about um, what was taught and or how it was taught and use that to inform year to year some areas where you try to, to, to revise? Yeah, uh, I... I do uh, a Google form that is um, anonymous, but then the students have a space at the bottom to um, include their name if they want. If they want, the benefit to including their name is um, if I have questions or concerns, we can have a conversation. But I would rather the students be honest than um, 
obsequious in what they write. So students use the Google form, uh, I would say certainly in courses that I'm running the first few years of. Um, at that point, I take a, uh, uh, kind of a, a birdshot approach and maybe teach a, a number of different things with the idea some things will work and some things won't, and that's okay. Um, but I think soliciting student feedback on where their successes and where there's opportunities for growth is, um, is good practice. It's certainly good for me, uh, personally and professionally to, to do that. Now, um, it requires maybe some thick skin that, uh, as students present feedback that you think something went brilliantly and they didn't, uh, you've got, you've got to, uh, hear that. But I think it's, um, I think it's good practice. Um, and that, that Google form is something that, uh, I hear from students is something that they appreciate and that they don't necessarily have the opportunity to present that to, um, my colleagues in other classes. So. If I remember correctly from a conversation we had a long time ago at, um, OEA's Equity Sparks retreat. Yeah. Um, you were mentioning, if I recall correctly, having um, um, guests come in from the community and be interviewed or give presentations. And I'm, I'm wondering if that was kind of how you jumped um, out the gate as a brand new teacher, or if that's been an area um, that you have been realizing um, or um, kind of been working on kind of some strategic skills about how to match certain speakers <clears throat> to, to the topics. And if, if anything comes to mind thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, so when I first started teaching, I taught for three years at uh, an IB world school in Beirut, Lebanon. And uh, at that point um, I was teaching, I was not you bringing guest speakers in those years. Um, but when I came to Beaverton High School, uh, I had the opportunity to teach a, an anthropology class. And uh, I, anthropology and a history class, where I brought in guest speakers, both in person, um, as well as, uh, well, in those days, I used Skype. Uh, this was 2015, 2014, so uh, well pre-COVID. And it was... Um, it was great uh, to be able to have um, guest speakers call in from uh, not just other cities, but I had people call in from uh, from Europe and the Middle East and elsewhere. And it was tricky, of course, with the, the time change, but uh, the students really appreciated it and the technology allowed it. Uh, and that sort of range of perspective, but also a degree of expertise, having um, university professors and people who have lived experience be able to talk to 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds uh, was invaluable. Uh, and then you mentioned the conversation that we had some years back in the race and ethnic studies course, um, more pre-COVID than post, um, I would reach out to members of the community uh, in that local history topic. And so uh, Dr. David Lewis, uh, an enrolled member in the Grand Round Tribe and a Tualatin Kalapuya himself, um, and a PhD anthropologist, uh, and he's currently at OSU, 
David Lewis was kind enough to come uh, up to Beaverton and talk to my kids about Tualatin and Kalapui and lifeways and traditional traditional ecological knowledge. That was really rich. Um, We've had uh, Lou Frederick, uh, state senator from North Portland, come in. Uh, A number of other um, members of the community come in and you know, it's um, it really grounds it in the local, and it bring in the in that case, and um, brings in a uh, a liveliness that I can't provide as their regular classroom teacher. And so, um, admittedly, this year I've um, I have not done that. Um, and I don't know if we're just um, getting out of the hangover of uh, being in COVID or something else, but uh, that's that's an invaluable part of teaching is is to be able to take field trips when you can um, or bring in guest speakers when you can. And I think the um, uh, the simplest thing, if you have the the technology and the means and the comfort to do it, is, is virtual guest speakers. And all of us now, I think, in the last three years have become experts on on that. I remember uh, this was probably eight, nine years back when I first started having virtual guest speakers. Um, It would involve many sessions of teaching them how to download Skype and how to set this up. And um, so every guest speaker required probably about three hours of handholding. But uh, now, now, you know, we all know how to jump on Zoom. So it's it's pretty easy, of course. Yeah. Thanks for elaborating on that. Um, my uh, last planned question for today is if you were mentoring yourself as an early career teacher, what advice or perspective might you give your younger self to help provide students with a more student-centered curriculum and learning experiences? Ooh, what a wonderful question. Um, I think the thing that I needed, first off, I had wonderful mentor teachers um, uh, at Sunset High School and at Lincoln High School where I did my student teaching. And I think all of them guided me in a way that has informed my teaching. I think one thing that I'm sure they said, but I wasn't able perhaps to hear it and I needed to uh, learn it on my own has been to ask myself, in a reflective way, why are you teaching this? Who is it for? And then um, when you create an assessment, what are you actually assessing? And moving in this backward way and, and with authentic assessments, shifting it from, um, well, I need to get a, something in the grade book to is the assessment itself a space in which students are learning through the assessment and um, also having the flexibility to um, be critical thinkers in ways that um, really allow for them to show their knowledge rather than memorize something or check off a, a box in a way that works for me. So I think the thing that I've, I would ask uh, younger me in some alternate timeline is um, why are you doing this? And um, like, why are you, 
you know, why are you teaching, I don't know, I'll pick something random, the Great Depression. Well, kids need to know it. Well, that's not a good enough of an answer. Um, what about teaching the Great Depression is important for them as people going into the 2030s? Um, how does teaching the Great Depression give them tools to understand their own world today and to understand how we got here? And then in the assessment itself, how are you giving students the space to really show that they were picking up what you were putting down, whether it's in terms of critical thinking or content or skills. Um, and that's something that I've, I've tried to get better at. Cool. Well, it has been so fun to have this venue to get to know more about you. Yeah, this is great. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit our webpage at grow.oregoned.org.